0: So, um, I'm going to give a talk this morning. Um, Sorry for those of you who wanted me to give the talk outside, I'm afraid that won't work for me, but as a concession, I'm happy to do some of the mindful movements outside, Um, but you might need some block, I'm going to start this talk off by telling you um, how I came to think about using this poem. For this event <coughs> it's partly because I, I feel as though there's a, a turning taking place in my life and um, and I kind of became aware of it okay. <laughs> I won't see you there Paul so, <coughs> um, so there was a kind of turning in my life that uh, started in um, January, when I was in New Zealand. And a friend of mine was telling me about a, uh, a film that he had seen with the other public preceptors, um, a film called The Sword of the Earth. And it's a film by about the um, well-renowned photographer, Sebastia, um Sargalo. And um, I haven't been able to see the film myself, because it's not available to purchase at the moment is quite new and it's it's gone but uh, this is what I remember the story that the uh, um, Sargalo he he was a photographer that spent many years wandering around the world taking photographs of the aftermath of wars so he saw an enormous amount of human suffering (coughs) and at some point he kind of felt it had enough He'd seen so much suffering, he kind of lost faith in humanity. Now this might not be the exact story, this is how I remember it. and In a way, it's kind of subjective really, because that's how I interpreted it. And uh, he lived, he moved. went to his ranch in the um, South American, the Amazonian jungle. And again, there was devastation there, the forest had been ripped down. And But he started, to cut a long story short, he started a, a project called the Genesis Project project and where he rejoiced in the plantation of replantation or plantation of the the jungle and seeing the jungle regenerate and this um, apparently gave him kind of hope and it was a kind of turning around and then he went off taking hundreds if not thousands of photographs of nature of regeneration projects all around the world and so what I got from this story was this, sometimes when you look at enough suffering, you feel as though you've had enough. And you want to turn and look at something brighter. And I realised that I'd spent the last ten years of my life teaching people how to turn towards their pain when I set up Breathworks with Vityamala and Ratnaguna, One of the, the things that you do, first of all, is to help people to accept to come to terms with they in awful pain sometimes. Um, <clears throat> and then I've taught teachers how to do it and, and so on. And I think I've kind of had enough of turning towards the suffering. Um, unlike um, Sadharanda, I don't remember having any ugly sisters uh, <laughs> in my mind. Um, I was rather odd as a young man. I was very um, lacking in confidence or shy, probably lacking in self-worth. But um, I probably t- just accepted it. That's how it was. Um, but I did something that probably most psychologists wouldn't encourage you to do. I just went around telling myself I was fantastic. <laughs> you know, like I was kind of like a tantric guru. You know, and, uh, and, and I kind of worked out that you know if I became too big-headed being fantastic, it was better than being too miserable, being having low self-esteem. So I kind of thought I'd share that with you, because that's an alternative. <laughs> and it worked for me. And uh, of course, the danger is of that, is you get a bit cocky. And uh, But if you're surrounded by friends like I have, they soon <coughs> take you down a peg or two, or three or four, or even ten. So um, I'd really like to, um, to focus this talk more on the brightness that comes with what happens when you've looked at the um, suffering. I have to say at Breathworks, I've seen it work so well when people turn towards their suffering, when they accept their suffering. It takes quite a long time, sometimes a lot of tissues, and tears, and, um, pain of people really accepting what they've got to live with. But once they do that, they start rebuilding a life that includes their condition. And they turn their life around, and they have a quality of life that's kind of almost (laughs) unprecedented, you could say, for people with those conditions. And I think there are people here today that have come through Breathworks in that way. And... um, course it does all start with suffering (coughs) even the Buddha said so, even Sangraksha says so that the the Dharma starts with Dukkha, it starts with acceptance that there is Dukkha in the world and Vidya Mala who is um, to my mind a very inspiring person, I know she inspires lots of other people, if you've heard her life story, she talks nowadays about um, four phases that she's gone through in her life Initially, when she damaged her back and had a car crash, um, and she was like being in a lot of pain, she went into total denial. She worked 60 hours a week in the film industry just to block out their experience of, of having to accept that she was in pain. After 10 years, I mean, some people learn these things quicker nowadays, but it took her 10 years, and this is what she tells us, um, she went into a, a, another phase of bargaining, which is where you do all the right things to make you, your condition better. But, of course, it doesn't work because you've got a chronic condition that's not going to get better. So everything you do sets you up to fail because the feedback you get from doing all the right things is that nothing's happening. In fact, sometimes it gets worse because if you like, uh, you overdo it, if you've got a very strong will, you do it even more if it's not working. She fortunately came across the work of uh, John in in Mindfulness, and... Uh, discovered actually maybe it was time to turn towards the pain and accept that she was in pain. It was a very interesting process she went through, working with meditation and so on. And she went through another 10 years. So she went through 10 years of bargaining and then 10 years of flourishing, of accepting. And then she discovered actually her life had changed so much she she was in a new phase, and she calls this new phase the phase of flourishing. Now it's not that you ever get free of the A phase of accepting, because suffering is always there. Life, even if you don't have chronic pain, life is always tripping you up. Things don't always go how you want them to, so it becomes unsatisfactory. You get ill sometimes. You have a lot of pain. We're all getting older, Um, and death is waiting for us, and that can be frightening too. So that's a kind of form of suffering. But I became more and more interested in. um, Wouldn't it be nice to be a trainer to train people in how to flourish? How to have a sense of well being, of brightness, of being like a radiant lamp. And um, I'm not quite sure how to do this, but I thought, you know, um, this is where my life, um, I'd like to take my life. I'd like to kind of write a new program, if you like, um, the one of um, moving from pain, living well with flourishing, something like that. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, you know, I, I thought this this poem, as good as it is, it's not a Buddhist. It's not written by a Buddhist, so I thought it was appropriate to kind of look for some turnings in the Buddhist um, in the Buddhist arena. It, the poem actually was written by a, a, a Universalist Unitarian, Unitarian minister called Christine Fry, it lives in California. So I started um, being an extreme perceiving type. I started thinking about turning. And, you know, all sorts of things came to me. And I, I have to be careful not to go off at tangents here because I'd start sharing it with you. But one of the things I thought was interesting, which I will share with you, is, um, of course, in Buddhism, and even if you're a beginner and you've done a, a Buddhist course, I'm sure you must have come across this. You must have come across the wheel. Has everyone come across the wheel, the wheel of life? Yeah, we well, if you haven't, go back and ask someone, ask someone to it, But a wheel turns, doesn't it? Yeah, so I thought, oh, wheel turning... And um, then there's a a teaching that comes out of the wheel of life. And that is the spiral. And the spiral path has kind of 12 stages. And it's a very, very interesting path. And I think it's one that's not really reflected on enough, um, as far as I can see. Because it's all about brightness. (laughs) It's just all about more and more brightness and clarity. Until you see things as they really are... And it transforms your life totally and completely. So, um, you know, I want to be an advocate for um, the spiral path. But the spiral path, too, starts with dukkha. It starts with um, the acceptance that there is dukkha in your life. And what's supposed to happen, that if you do really, really accept, uh, really turn towards life and look at life and look at your life, whether it's uh, I, I tend to look at external things because I'm an, you know, an extrovert in the Myers-Briggs system and other people apparently look inwards at their own mental states and things like that. I look at all the horrible things that are going on in the outside world more than I look at the things that might be going on in me. So I don't think I've had any problems I'm not interested in those. Um, so um, it all starts with suffering. There's a lot of suffering. And as I said before, if you spend too much time on suffering, you just get depressed, and well, I do. And uh, you kind of think, actually, is it really worth living? And you can go in that direction. But the spiral path, once you accept there is suffering in the world, um, it's as though something new arises. It's called um, sadhā or shradhā in Sanskrit. And this is what Sangrakshita has got to say about it. He says it's um, the healthy counterpart of Tana or Trishna, which means thirst or craving that's thirst or craving for conditioned existence, thirst or craving for all the things that are thinking can make you happy in this life. It develops when, as a result of our experience of the world, of uh, experience of the painful, unsatisfactory and frustrating nature of samsaric, worldly um, existence we begin to place the heart not so much on the conditioned as on the unconditioned. At at first this is no more than a vague intermittent stirring of the emotions hesitant and confused But as it grows stronger and as it um, and as as its object become more clearly into focus we sorry um, um, it becomes more clear and focused of what we're doing. So as, as this stirring um, grows, we get more and more faith. We get more confidence. We have a longing even for something higher. And then what's supposed to develop an inter- independence upon this is a, um, another state that is um, very joyful where we experience a kind of cheerfulness, a positivity. It's as though um, we feel brighter, um, less attached to things. And if that wasn't enough, just having joy, if we go on focusing on this, we exter- start to experience something called pretty. I always like this word, pretty. It doesn't mean you look beautiful. But it's, it's, kind of, you, it's quite easy to experience this if you want to. It's when you kind of sit there meditating, meditate and you get, oh, You get this kind of upsurging of, of energy that kind of lifts you off your cushion. And it can become extremely powerful. It can even raise the... Um, you know when you get a fright of something or something happens and you get a shiver going through you? Well, that's kind of pretty. Okay. It's not a state you want to live with all the time because, um, you know, it's kind of... <laughs> You know, shaking all the time. People think you, you need help. Um, but fortunately, as that kind of wears out, and you kind of calms down, you have a state of, um, of just kind of sheer um, calm, relaxation. And, uh, and then this eventually turns into bliss. And then after that, you get concentration, you get clear. You see things as they really are. And then there's a few more stages. So... Um, Dukkha was just one of those. The rest is all about there's something so wonderful and bright that we can all experience if we want to. It's, um, it's just simply that one thing arises in dependence of the preceding one. So you have to be prepared to turn towards without fear, um, with a sense of um, confidence that you can turn towards the suffering and out of, out of this will arise sense of um, things just become more and more bright, and more wonderful. Sometimes it's um, it's even said that, um, in fact, in the, in the uh, secular mindfulness world now, I heard the other day, that uh, mindfulness is often talked about as like turning on a light bulb. It's like you turn on the light, you bring you know, mindfulness to your condition is going, oh, oh, yeah, I've got self-critic, or, you know, I've got uh, this going on, or this going on. And that compassion brings with it kindness, so you kind of care about yourself. So, you, it's quite good to think of mindfulness in that way, isn't it? Like turning on a light. That the more mindful you are, the, um, <coughs> the brighter you are. You know, and uh, I'm going to go back to that reading I read yesterday about the radiant lamp. When you meditate, you become like a radiant lamp in a moment. Um, Dukkha, by the way, isn't exactly about. Um, oh, uh, when, when we turn towards Dukkha and we turn towards our suffering, sometimes, and, and we use this term a lot in the secular mindful world, it's about accepting who you are. Now the problem with this is our teacher, Sangharakshita, has said we shouldn't accept how we are. So there's a kind of conflict here, apparent conflict. It's not really a conflict. It's simply that, yes, you do need to accept where you are. It's a bit like if you want to go anywhere, you need to work out where you are, don't you? you know, like if you want to get home, you can look at the map, you've got to find Coddington. I mean, if you've got sat-nav, it'll do it for you. But if you were using the old-fashioned method, you'd have to work out, or if you're going to go for a walk, you've got to work out where you are, and then you can go there. But if you, if you don't know where you are, you, go, you don't know where to go. So it's, it is necessary to accept that you're in Coddington, just as it, you have to accept that you're, you're well, a bit screwed up, or you've got problems and things like that. And, um, but that's, that's all right. You know, that's just how you are, starting point. And now you can become more become more than that, you can become fantastic, particularly if you tell yourself you are. (laughs) So, um, a kind of new um, me begins to um, arise, and we have a sense even of a higher self. I don't know if you've ever tried doing this, but um, I guess you've all probably tried being aware of what's going on in your mind, haven't you? Has everyone done that? <coughs> so you all know what I'm talking about. What is it that's being aware of what's going on in your mind? Have you ever asked yourself that? Have you ever sort of thought, what's this part of my mind that's now watching this other part of my mind? So you've got another mind that's kind of kind of, kind of moved back. And you think, oh, it's a thought. Hello, thought. Goodbye, thought. And then you've got an emotion. Hello, emotion. Goodbye, emotion. And uh, it's sensations in the body. Oh, sensations in the body. Goodbye, sensations in the body. It's as though you're kind of moving back. And if you ever try to focus your attention on what it is that's watching, it's like trying to grab your hand with your hand. It's not really possible to do. But what I found, if you actually make that more the focus of your experience, all sorts of funny things happen. Like you might suddenly go, like that. Because it's quite powerful. And it's as though you're now starting to access a higher self. Sometimes people talk about the human brain even as having two parts, like the left brain and the right brain. The part, at least, is not absolutely accurate. The part that deals with conception, language, (coughs) ideas. um, The part that we use most of the time, if not all the time, that gives us a sense of confidence. But every now and again, another part come, seems to, to come alive and it tells us what to do. So, in that story of the man in the snow getting lost, he was sure where to go. And it's as so though this other part of you has a perspective that you just don't have in your ordinary part of the brain. So, so you, you have access to a higher self that knows better than the lower self. And um, it's Something to play around with and just kind of, you know, think maybe i try and drop back and become the mind that's watching the mind. Of course, the mind that's being watched stops happening because there's nothing to watch. So you have to kind of re-establish it and that's what you call distraction. And then you can start watching it again. But it will lead to possibly other things happening. Not only with the light, as you become brighter, you also start having a sense of um, caring. Um, some people perhaps need to start with caring for themselves. Um, if you if you have a tendency to put yourself down a lot, then maybe that's your starting point. But compassion really is about other people. So in some ways, self-compassion is a little bit bit of a paradox to me. I'm not really sure what it means because it's like, it simply means being with suffering. But Usually it means about other people. And compassion, of course, is the counterpart of wisdom. But you can't have wisdom without compassion. So if anyone tells you they've had an insight into non-self, into reality, what you will expect them to exhibit is a greater sense of compassion for other people. If you're not experiencing that and you think you've got insight, you might like to question whether you've got real insight or not. Because it's, 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 it can't, you can't have one without the other. It's like two wings of a bird, as is often said. And as compassion arises, you start to um, live the spiritual life, not just for yourself. In fact, you could say, and I think Sanger actually said something like this, There is no spiritual life if it's about self-development. Simply about self-development. It is about self-development, but the self-development has to include others. Which is why on this weekend we're having these talks um, about sangha sangha building. If we're not building the sangha, if we're not uniting as a community, we're probably not leading, leading spiritual living, the spiritual life. So it's something to go away and reflect on. You may disagree. You may see things in a different way. And the Bodhisattva, the being that we can all become, who devotes their time, their energy, their inspiration into living the spiritual life because they care, or we care, for others, including ourselves, not excluding ourselves, usually exhibits... Kind of four modes of beings, four modes of being. And you could call these, um, in, in uh, Sanskrit, these are called the Sangra Vastus, or they're sometimes called the means of unification. It's simply that the Bodhisattva, by just being what he or she is, starts to unify people into the Sangha. Now, If you're interested in becoming a Bodhisattva and unifying the Sangha, you can also work kind of the other way around. You might think, actually, I'm still telling myself how fantastic I am. And, um, yeah, I am a Bodhisattva, but, you know, what do I do? Um, Well, you you, you look at what Bodhisattvas do. This is how how Buddhist ethics are, actually, is that we have these five uh, precepts. All they are—it's not like philosophical system. It's just built upon how a Buddha is, a Buddha behaves in this way, and so we can become a Buddha by behaving in the same way as a Buddha. It's kind of simple as that, really. Um, and we can become a Bodhisattva by perhaps making a little bit more conscious an effort to work with these Vastas, these four um, ways of unification. And of course, the first of these, you probably could guess this one, is the thing that we ask you to do most at centres. What would that be? <coughs> Dana. That's right. But, um, you know, we, we sometimes tell you that the centre needs your money to survive, but actually what we're telling you is that you need to give in order to practice a spiritual life. And sometimes that sounds a bit of con, doesn't it? Like, you know, it's a salesman trying to get money out of you. <laughs> but um, it has been shown. I was at a, a conference a couple of years ago, um, a conference that a woman was giving on well-being. And, um, you know, I think David Cameron's previous government had this whole idea of mindful, mindful breath and then well-being and so on. and put some money into this institute in Cambridge and they've been developing well-being. Um, and now they've got on to flourishing as well, by the way. Well-being is not enough, so they want people to flourish. But I remember seeing all these graphs and statistics that showed... When people are generous, they actually have a sense of well-being and they're happy. So you, you kind of think, well, if I give away things, I'm going to be unhappy because I'm going to lose them. But it's the opposite. And actually, you can go by your own experience, can't you? you know, When you really genuinely give something to someone... And um, you communicate with them. It's wonderful. And it makes you feel good. And so um, it all starts with dharma, of just giving. Funnily enough, if you practice any one of these, you also practice all four of them. You don't know what the other three are yet. But um, one of them, of course, is exemplification. And exemplification is like giving dharma you're exemplifying what a bodhisattva does, a bodhisattva gives. So, there could be a whole process that goes on in our centre. We could, in fact, Bhante has this aphorism, he says you could say, a spiritual community is characterised by the constant exchange of presence amongst its members. Now, I would like to just rejoice in the, the Manchester Centre, the um, Manchester Sangha, because I think you actually do practice this quite a lot. But there is a lot of, I see a lot of exchange of presence um, going on. And you know, when people leave and so on, there's always presence and rejoicing. People going to get ordained, there's, you know, there's a lot of rejoicing in that. There's a, there's a lot of sharing that goes on already. And it's a really good thing to do, isn't it? And it really makes you feel happy doing it. You you as the person doing it and the person receiving. It kind of unifies you into... um, I was going to say into kind of more like a family, but I know some people have difficult families, so that might not be less less (laughs) than the Sangha. Into, um, you know, a kind of an association, a community that is united. But apparently, the more we give, the more united we become. So if if we're constantly giving things... um, You know, just think how wonderful it would be. Sometimes people don't know what to give. I'm one of those people. I don't quite know what to give people. But I was thinking the other day that when I lived in Sweden, (coughs) and I lived for a while in Germany, (coughs) it was very common when you visited people to take a bunch of flowers. Even men. um, Men gave flowers to men, which in this country doesn't usually happen. So I'd like to invite you all to give me flowers. (laughs) (laughs) We're at a loss of a present to give me. And um, you could do this with everyone else. It's, you know, flower doesn't cost much. And uh, a plant may be even better. But um, you, you could just... Um, you know, bars of chocolate don't always work because people are on special diets and things like that. But, um, and but that's what happens with me. I kind of get caught up in what to give someone and I don't give anything. So I'm going to stick with flowers in the future. But, you know, that's the first thing to do. And, of course... Um, when you, you're giving, I say this is a kind of a means of exemplification, but I'll return to exemplification in a moment. But you usually also practice the second of these um, four method modes of unification, and that is um, loving speech, because you don't say, "Here's a flower, here you go." <laughs> <laughs> well, you might do, but you know it might sort of be in a pleasant. way. A bloke, that's maybe your starting point because <laughs> you, you don't quite know how to get all sweet and uh, lovey dovey, you know. But um, you could, you know, you could find a more sophisticated way of giving a flower. Oh, look, I found this beautiful flower, I'd just really like to give it to you. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> so, um yeah, sometimes we do need to speak um, our mind, and that can be come across a little bit harsh. It's not that we shouldn't complain about things when they need complaining about. But it needs to be done on the basis of um, what the other person needs to hear, not just us getting something off our chest. Or if that's what we need to do, because sometimes it, that's, that can be a useful thing too, it's a way of turning and accepting something, We need to set up the conditions that we can do it so we're not just being angry. Because using harsh speech and unkindly speech can lead you to mental states of of, um, irritation and anger and so forth. Whereas kindly, um, loving speech will lead you to mental states of caring, um, kindness, gentleness towards others and towards yourself too. So that's another thing we could consider doing. We could consider how we speak. Um, is it loving? Um, sometimes one, one of the things we often do, um, and Sancrax has been very keen on his disciples, people like me and you, um, not doing is using what he calls harsh speech. If you become an order member, it's one of the precepts is not to use harsh speech. And uh, harsh speech includes expletives, particularly the F word, you know, which has kind of come into common usage. But um, if you actually, if, 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 as you become more and more sensitive because you've moved from dukkha to joy to, um, you know, radiance <laughs> and so on, you become more sensitive. And as you become more sensitive, when people go, oh, F, it kind of creates a jar for you. It's quite unpleasant. I mean, if you're you're not sensitive, of course, you just go, yeah. (laughs) And, um, you know, you just stay at that level. But actually, if you start thinking, actually, I don't want to do that. I want to be a bit more sensitive. You do become sensitive, and it can be a bit jarring. So then you could ask your friends, say, you know... Do you, do you need to say the F word? Couldn't you just say, oh, shut the door? There's <laughs> uh, um, still an expletive. But you, gradually you learn to go from, you know, um, catching yourself, like, you go, um, yes, well. And you, you kind of, you, you can hold things back sometimes. And you can do this with mindfulness. Uh, usually, when you're very unmindful, like me sometimes, a thought comes in your head and it pops out of your mouth. And um, so... Want, we can all work with that, all of us, and we can all have a more loving approach to love. Doing good is another one of these modes, um, Arthur Chara. It's um, you know, just literally doing good. Um, beneficial activity is another word for it it 's not necessarily beneficial activity of good doing in the worldly sense, although this is a good starting point it 's just you see someone who needs some help and you just help them but um, for the Bodhisattva, doing good is um, the good that comes from helping people to develop spiritually <coughs> so sometimes just you know doing something for someone might seem good, but actually, if you could um, do something more that help them to consider self-development, that would be even more wonderful. I mean, it could get tricky, couldn't it, because someone asks you for some change, and you think, oh, I'm not sure about giving some changes, and you start saying, you know, what are you going to do with the change when I to give it to you? And then, uh, you know, I, mean, if you, I know people that do this, I, I really admire them, they kind of take the whole conversation round into one of self-development, you know, like, um, so what are you going to do with that, you know, and uh, so, so here you are, stuck here. And, uh, yeah, you'd have to be quite imaginative how, how you do it, because you could get lumbered with them. And, um, and that sometimes happens, you have to take them off for a meal, and then sit with them talking for a while. But uh, if, if you're a real Bodhisattva, you might consider doing that, but you, know, you might choose your friends and people you deal with carefully. But it's that kind of helping, at least, that's leading people on to a higher state, to a higher level. It's not being evangelical, saying, hey, you know what, what you need's a dharma. I mean, that might be appropriate with some people. But it's kind of saying, oh, I go to this Buddhist centre, it's really peaceful, there. it's right in the middle of the city, it's great when you've been out of shopping, it's all a bit stressful, you go to the Buddhist centre, you have a cup of tea, and it kind of makes you feel better, just, just doing that. You know, and you feel a bit more tranquil. People walk around smiling. I mean, that you walk in the door, they smile at you. Oh, maybe we ought to add that here as the fifth Sangra of So, smiling. I mean, if you're always looking serious when people come in the door, they're going to get put off a little bit. So, you've got to practice smiling. And um, so, you can um, help people simply by smiling in the Buddhist centre. People come in, tell people about it. And in all sorts of ways, I think you get my meaning, don't you? So, it's kind of like, it's not just doing any good doing. But it's good doing it that, these people want to a higher level. And then exemplification. Well, exemplification is um, actually you taking your spiritual life seriously and um, becoming more. <coughs> Sometimes we think it's enough to do good in the spiritual life. Um, I have to say that uh, in my Life. I've been an order member now for 40 years. And I got... Because I, I kept telling myself I was fantastic. And I was going to have to live, walk the talk. Um, I wasn't really fantastic, of course. But I was telling myself that. I started um, thinking... One of the best things to do... When someone something was needed... And someone said, would someone like to do it? Just put your hand up. Before you even thought about it. And uh, I thought, that's, that's a good thing to do. So... I noticed that I ended up doing all the things that other people didn't want to do. I've been a treasurer so many times. (laughs) Of trustees. It's not that I particularly like money. or In fact, people usually don't like me being the treasurer because I tell them that there's no money. And they can't do anything. But I end up being the person because i put my hand up and um, someone has to do it. Um, I've also been a chair... A chairman as we used to call it um, many times and I think I did it because it needed doing um, I don't remember ever really volunteering for it, I volunteered because I saw it needed doing, it wasn't like I thought, oh, you know what, a bit of status I'll be a bit be chair, you know, people look up to me, um, of course you never know what your motives are, maybe there was an unconscious thing of that, but usually, you know, first time it happened I was with Banti and the uh, it was at Padmaloka and the person that was chair was leaving and he said, Well of course this require requires us to have a new chair. I remember I can still have a vision of walking around the garden. I said, oh, well I wonder who that could be bounty. He says, Hmm, yes, I wonder. <laughs> <laughs> and gradually I kind of dawned on me that he was talking about me. So I said, well, oh, I could do it. He said, Oh great. <laughs> I think I was four four times I was chair at Padmaloka, um, on various occasions. And um, the one time I did take on being a Czech because I thought it would be a good thing to do is when I set up a centre in Sweden. And that was the worst thing I think I could ever do. do. I mean, I set this centre up and, um, and I, I thought I'd become a, a somebody. You know, like Sweden was the place that Sona set up. You know, and that's what I'd be known for. <laughs> but um, it didn't really work out, actually. That wasn't my, you know, skill strength setting up centres. I actually was good at laying foundations. But, you know... No one ever gets rejoiced for Lang Foundations. It's what goes on top of the foundations that people say, Wow, look at their centre, he built that or someone. They say, Well, there must be some big foundations under there. (laughs) Wonder who built those. (laughs) So um, I kind of thought the the Sweden project was a bit ill conceived because I thought, you know, I could be someone. Um, so beware. Anyway, these are the four things you can do. You can practice quite literally, just um, even making a precept of it. Can I tell them what precept is now. Do you want to? Do it? Okay, um, a precept is a really good thing to do. It's taking our like training principle. We recite five precepts, but it can become quite sort of automatic. Can't we? we just say you know? Um, um, Deeds of loving kindness, of course. Um, we purify our body. Well, we kind of say these things, and, they, they, we, and we properly, they're having a, an effect on us, because you put an idea into our head, and it kind of walks around, and we do, do change. But we could also put the idea in of um, kindly speech, for instance. We could put the idea in of um, dana. You know, we, we take on dana in a, kind of, in a way where we're going to give something away every day. We take that as, a, as a, a training principle, as a practice, and we could also ask our friend to, you know, uh, have a, a kind of mate who is doing <coughs> another precept to check whether we're doing the precept. You know, so did you give anything away today or this week? Which days did you miss? Come on, be honest. And you, you, you kind of think, oh yeah. And so you, you can actually help one another. You can have a buddy. That's what I was looking for. The word buddy. You know, um, with a precept, it's not a vow you actually decide you're going to do it. And you get someone to pull you up when when you're not doing it. If you do all these things, you start building the Buddha land. This is why the Bodhisattva is... This is the aim of the Bodhisattva. The Bodhisattva's aim is to build a Buddha land. The aim of our centres are to build Buddha lands. Within our centre, it's not just to teach... Um, um, the Dharma. In fact, um, under exemplification, Sankarachita says that, um, um, no, ex- ex- um, sorry, doing good, under that one, he says that the Bodhisattva doesn't teach the Dharma. It's not the giving of knowledge that the Bodhisattva does. He inspires or she inspires people to practice. So it's a different kind of teaching. It's a kind of Helping people to do something by encouraging. People often don't think they can do certain things. So a lot of encouragement, a lot of inspiration is needed. This is the act of the Bodhisattva. If we could imagine the Manchester Buddhist Centre, as good as it is, being even better than it is, (coughs) with us all practicing the Sangravastus of giving presents to one another, Helping out wherever we can, um, just being you know, a smiling radiant lamp there in the reception when people come through the door. You know, it is wonderful sometimes when I walk through the door, people are sitting around chatting, and, uh, and people do look up and smile. So, you know, it's not that we're not doing it, but it, we can do all these things much more, and it will have a wonderful effect on us. Meditation is something I just wanted to, to mention to I think meditation is just about changing our mental states, but I'd just like to go back to this reading yesterday, because um, I don't think this gets enough publicity, really. It's this, the idea that meditation actually changes the world. I was thinking about this, because I, I think a lot, and I was thinking that when, when you... When you Think meditation could actually change the physical world. Someone's going to say, Does it really? Is that true? Okay. Well, then I thought this would be my answer The physical world only exists in your perception. Whether it exists outside of that is just a, a moot point, you know, you can't prove it or not. All you've got is your perception. You've, you know, light comes in through your eyes. Turns upside down, an image forms in the back of your eyes, stimulates and rods in the back of your eyes, sends a signal to the brain, and you see a tree. That's the external material world that you see. If your brain operates in a different sort of way, that tree's relationship to you will be different, won't it? So it's quite commonsensical. Of course you can change the external world change the other way people see the external world so Milarepa in his story he says that in the midst of many manifestations I felt as if I were a radiant lamp all instructions thus became clearer than ever before so he understood things more but Sangra actually makes these comments he goes even a bit further he says usually we are bombarded by all sorts of influences and impressions which have an unfortunate effect upon us But when we meditate, we are generating very powerful, very positive, very skillful states. So it's as though we start taking the offensive. We become active rather than passive. Do you see what I mean? We not only become positive, we become bright. Not only bright, but clear. It's as though we are no longer under the influence of the things that surround us. But that we are, but they are under our influence. We are like a radiant lamp dispelling the darkness. In the light of that radiant lamp, all instructions thus become clearer than ever before. There is a heightened positivity, a stronger experience of individuality. You don't feel so crushed, so overwhelmed by the world. You feel more powerful. ...than your surroundings. The lamp is not overwhelmed by the darkness. So this is what um, we can bring to our centres. We can dispel the darkness of people's mental states. Dispel the darkness that we can feel... ...from all what's going on in the world. And we can bring brightness. It's not that we don't acknowledge and accept... ...all those other things. Of course we have to... But at the same time, our focus could be more and more on the positive. And the spiritual life is a very, very positive, <clears throat> albeit very challenging path to take. But as we all practice, the Sangha will be unified. And it will kind of have a, a knock-on effect. It will be easier to practice. The more unified we are as a Sangha, the easier it is to practice the spiritual life. The more we practice the spiritual life, the more we will unify the Sangha. The more the unified Sangha, the easier it is to practice spiritual life. And in no time, we will all be at least Bodhisattvas, if not Buddhas. <laughs> Thank you. <coughs>